It's the evil twin of the famous Fender Pink Paisley. On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Pink Floyd's more. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair and on this Palaver for Two episode, I'm joined by my very good friend Ken Gregory as we tackle Pink Floyd's more. I was soliciting a third person and I got shot down. Oh, no. I think it's because the album just doesn't have any traction, man. It's funny. I I don't know that I knew this album even existed. I was when, you know, again, as, as we were sort of ramping up for this and I went hog wild purchasing media, you know, I'm, I would just go to these used bookstores and, and search for, you know, Pink Floyd in, in either CD or vinyl. I happened to find this on CD. If I saw something I didn't have, I would just grab it because I figured I needed it. And, <laughs> you know, it, and, and the, the cover, you know, is, is sort of this stylized, you know, thing. And, and it's, it's funny because we got this, we were talking about Don Quixote on, uh, on Dulcinea, right? And so here you've got a guy, you've got a guy attacking a windmill. So I, I thought, well, that's kind of interesting, not knowing what I'm it sorry, is. I'm sorry, where's the windmill? It's, oh, oh, oh. All right. So he's kind of charging at a windmill from far yeah. away. Uh-huh. Okay. And of course you, you go inside and, you know, there, there are boobies. So that's always fun. I did not know that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I, I didn't know what this was. And, you know, whatever. It's a Pink Floyd album. Great. So when I started, uh, you know, to to get ready for this, and, and I said I, I went and I, you know, oh, it's soundtrack for movie. Cool. What's this movie about? And I watched it. I've actually watched it twice. But, I mean, I can understand how it wouldn't maybe have any traction because it it doesn't have, you know, a lot of the the charms of Piper or Saucer Full of Secrets. I think we're going to have to start a new portion of the podcast when we're doing Pink Floyd. And that is Joe's catch up with Nick Mason's book portion of this. Uh-oh. Because as I struggle through this story, I'm usually uh, a little bit behind the times. And Nick Mason has some fascinating things to say about A Saucer Full of Secrets once I finally figured out where that was. Oh, it's not in chronological order. Well, it, it's it's a very nonlinear story, so I wasn't really sure where it was going to come in. So if, if you don't mind, I'd like to take just a, a quick step back and and cover some some highlights of what Nick Mason had to say about a saucer full of secrets, which we covered in our last episode. Oh, um, guaranteed that's more interesting than what we're about to cover. Go for <laughs> it. <laughs> we returned to Abbey Road to work on the new album once David was on board. Rick contributed Remember a Day and Seesaw. Remember a Day had a different drum feel to our usual pounding style, and I eventually relinquished the playing to Norman. That's Norman Smith, I believe his name is, the producer. I knew this. I knew this. That was in my material, too. Yeah. He said, I really didn't like giving up my drum stool and never have, but in this particular instance, I would have struggled to provide a similar feel. Re-listening to this, it feels more like a Norman Smith track than anyone else's. Apart from the rather unfloyd-like arrangement, Norman's voice is also prominent within the backing vocals. Wow. So there's that. He goes on to talk about Roger supplied three songs, Corporal Clegg, Let There Be More Light, and Set the Controls for the Heart of the Sun. 
Within months, Roger had galvanized from the awkwardness of take up thy stethoscope and walk to a lyric style that was much more flowing. Light and Clegg had considerable production input from Norman, and the latter some verbal input, too. Corporal Clegg has Norman muttering, get your hair cut on the fade-out as an in-joke, and lyrically the subject matter can be seen as a humorous forerunner of The Gunner's Dream. So the that's... Gunner's I mean, how many decades spread out is that? <laughs> Jeez. Right? So um, I thought that was funny. He, he talks a lot about Set the Controls. Um, he calls it perhaps the most interesting song in relation to what we were doing at the time, since it had been constructed to make the most of what we had learnt. Learnt spelled that way in the British fashion, L-E-A-R-N-T. Um, and he Unless talks about. We think it's someone other than him writing the book. So sure. Yeah, and um, and he talks about how they, you know, they they played it live a whole lot. But here's the thing that really floored me, absolutely made me fall out of my chair, given the conversation that we had. And the title track, "A Saucer Full of Secrets," is, in my view, one of the most coherent pieces we have ever produced. I'm sorry, what? Why did he say that? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me read a little first. Because <laughs> I, 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 I read this and I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, in Princess Bride, when they say it, I don't think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> <laughs> so Nick Mason goes on to say, instead of the standard song structure made up of verses, choruses, middle eight, and bridge, and in contrast to the evolution... Of the more improvised pieces, it was carefully constructed. Roger and I mapped it out in advance following the classical musical convention of three movements. This was not unique to us, but it was unusual. With no knowledge of scoring, we designed the whole thing on a piece of paper, inventing our own hieroglyphs. Um, one starting point was a sound that Roger had discovered by placing a mic close to the edge of a cymbal and capturing all the tones that are normally lost when it is struck hard. This gave us a first section to work from, and with four individuals contributing freely, the piece developed quickly. Um, he goes on to talk about the end sequence was an anthem that built throughout and in performance gave us an opportunity to use ever-increasingly large house organs, culminating in the one at Albert Hall, an instrument with such power that it was rumored certain stops should never be used, as they might either damage the building's foundations or cause an attack of mass, mass nausea amongst the audience members. We also used a Mellotron, with its weird fluxing tape loops of string sounds, which the musicians' union were up in arms about, as they thought it would mark the end of live string players. The mm. instrument now seems quaint and it feels as though it should be in a museum alongside the serpent and crumb horn, but its sound is so distinctive it is now digitally recreated in sound boxes with all its imperfections part of the continuing charm. I remember the general atmosphere in the studio working on a saucer full of secrets as being industrious and constructive. All of us wanted to be involved all the time, so creating a percussion sound would find Roger holding the cymbal, David moving the microphone closer, Rick adjusting the height, and me delivering the coup de gras. We were learning the technology and some studio technique, and the work was getting done, even if it wasn't entirely to Norman's taste. So that was not at all what I was anticipating. Um, that's quite an eloquent description of A Saucer Full of Secrets, the song, which I did not experience myself in in reviewing this that record. I believe we panned that particular track. I believe we did. So, yes. you know, it, uh, that's why I felt it was important to when I discovered this to take a step back. So I, I appreciate you letting me waste five minutes of our time. No, 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 no. Uh, th 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 this helps us in the long run. We won't have to go back and do the, the lessons learned. We'll just keep learning as we go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, heavens. But I will say there's about a paragraph on this particular album, maybe a little bit more. Um, he does talk a little bit about the uh, the director, who apparently was a Pink Floyd fan. They were paid six hundred pounds each um, for eight days of work around Christmas, 
And as he describes it, there was a little pressure to provide Oscar-winning songs or a Hollywood-style soundtrack. In fact, complementing the various mood sequences, Roger came up with a number of songs for the film that became part of our live shows for some time after. Um, there was no budget for a dubbing studio with a frame count facility, so we sat in a viewing theater, timed the sequences carefully, and then went into Pi Studios in Marble Arch, where we worked with the experienced in-house engineer Brian Humphreys. Mm -hmm. That made the wikis, that last yeah. part there, because the stopwatch is, is notable. I mean, I, I have no doubt that uh, music for cinema has gone through, you know, many iterations where folks were just winging it. And uh, that, it probably wasn't that interesting back then to use the stopwatch, but in today's terms, for the kiddos who have computer clocks and everything, sure, that's, that, that's quite, quite a sight. <laughs> Yeah, and and just a funny thing that when I was in London, I actually stayed in Marble Arch, so I know exactly the area. Ooh! So I thought that was kind of cool, um, but that's really about it. All that he has to say about about that album. But again, it was made you know over eight days, which is really quite an amazing feat. I like how you said uh, um, Nick wrote a paragraph or a little bit more. Yeah, more. Yeah. A little bit more, more. So that that is sort of what we're dealing with here tonight. So we have. Um, do we want to do some some nineteen sixty nine um, context, Ken, or have have we already covered that enough? Nah, we've kind of covered that. I I I, I, I think we're good. I I, th I think it, the context is going to get real juicy coming up here. Yeah, we I all mean, know what's going on at this point. I mean, the the reason why I'm not amped to do this is because some of the verbiage is like, oh, well, if this whole touring thing doesn't work out, we'll just become movie scoring musicians. And, you know, they're just kind of in a weird limbo, like not fully forgetting Sid, but not finding their own identity and just kind of taking the work as it comes. And, 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 and I mean, I guess I could talk about the albums that came out in 1969, but, but I don't think they were thinking much about the albums that came out in 1969. I think they were deliberately in their own sphere at this point for this album. Yeah. So if, I'll, I'll give the particulars and then we can sort of dive right into it. So more was released on in June of 1969, produced by Pink Floyd, released on the labels EMI, Columbia, and Tower. Band lineup is the now standard David Gilmore, Roger Waters, Richard Wright, and Nick Mason. Track listing is Cirrus Minor, The Nile Song, Crying Song, Up the Kyber, Green is the Color, Cymbaline, Party Sequence, Main Theme, Ibiza Bar, More Blues, Quicksilver, A Spanish Piece, and Dramatic Theme. More is the third studio album and first soundtrack album by English rock band Pink Floyd. It was released on 13 June 1969 in the United Kingdom by EMI Columbia and on 9 August 1969 in the United States by Tower Records. The soundtrack is for the film of the same name, which was primarily filmed on location on Ibiza and was the directional debut of... I'm going to assume since, uh, I, I don't know, it, it's spelled Barbet, but it maybe isn't, maybe it's Barbet, I, I don't know. Um, Barbet Schroeder, it was the band's first album without former leader Sid Barrett. The album was a top 10 hit in the UK, but received mixed reviews. Several songs became live favorites over the following years. Like other Pink Floyd albums, it has been reissued on CD with additional material and outtakes. Oh, it sounds like a lot of outtakes already, but sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what? Yeah, okay, all right. The timeline of progressive rock does have one significant 69 release that actually uh, was a movie, and that's The Who's Tommy came oh. out uh, in May of 69, uh, just a couple weeks before more. Um, and, 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 and days after this was released, uh, Captain Beefheart and his magic band released Trout Mask Replica, which is just iconic in, in uh, some of these uh, proggier circles. 
Um, going back, it's just a, a very weird year. You have Jefferson Airplane with Bless It's Pointed Little Head in February. Um, Genesis, from Genesis to Revela Revelation in March. Moody Blues have On the Threshold of a Dream in April. Uh, for some reason, we credit Chicago with uh, Chicago Transit Authority album in April. George Harrison has a solo album in May. T-Rex has a release in May. So, yeah, I mean, we're kind of proggy, but we're not quite proggy in 69. So have you watched the movie at all, Ken? Oh, heavens no. <laughs> Do you care about the movie at all? I mean, you, you you guys made it sound a little bit droll and dark and just kind of uh, less less appealing. And the subject matter was uh, you have a hitchhiker that has some dreadful druggy experience. Yeah, so he um, he's he's a German fellow who meets a girl, I believe, in maybe Paris. She's an American. She used to have a heroin problem, and. They end up, he ends up following her to Ibiza where, you know, long story short, she ends up getting him hooked on heroin and he does not, he takes to it too well to the point where he ends up just, uh, you know, having a terrible time. And, and, and the two of them have this just weird relationship that is sort of difficult to, to sort of deal with or accept and are you saying there are no boobies oh no there's 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 plenty of boobies um oh. but, but it's just it's it it's a very strangely written story and you know it, it turns out I've, I've actually watched it twice because the first time i was kind of very confused and i'm glad i went back and watched it this the second time because the story is is much easier to follow once i had sort of some idea of where I was hmm. and, and what came out at me is there is really nothing subtle about this story at all. Every bad thing and every major plot point is like foreshadowed in letters about eight feet tall, you know, in the hmm. very beginning of the movie. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's just, and these people are honestly, they are borderline reprehensible to the point that you don't even care the tragedy that's about to befall him. It just doesn't matter. Um, I'll compare not like not, not like Seinfeld vicious with a with, with a hint of humor and a hint of love. Yeah, no, it was just it was terrible. And and I'll I'll compare and contrast um, to a fantastic movie, American Beauty. Oh, um, I, I know Kevin Spacey is is you know maybe not someone we want to invoke. But in terms of a story, I think that, um, you know, they, uh, what's that guy's name? Lester something or another. They, they create a sort of affinity with Lester that makes his ultimate demise, spoiler alert, that much more powerful. But in this particular case, when, when the guy dies, you just don't even care. You're like, oh, yeah, he fucking deserve that <laughs> it's just it's it's very very strange but i will say that i think i think in in regards of what they were trying to do the the music really fits into this pretty well and i like it you're feeding my wiki addiction here when you talk about movies um, <laughs> um, in 1969, uh, I don't recognize many of the movies other than Midnight Cowboy. Does nope. it ring a bell? Doesn't nope. ring a bell. Okay. I mean, I've heard right. of it, but I, I don't know that I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we're connoisseurs of, uh, late sixties movies. No, we are not. Absolutely mm. not. And it was, like I said, part of, I, it was difficult to watch the first time because, I mean, just the, the technology of movies, and plus it's overdubbed. It, it was it was a difficult watch. The first all episode. the audio is overdubbed. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Well, it's it's really very funny. I, I'm not exactly sure what language it was originally in, but the English was overdubbed, and the the version that I saw had subtitles 
for most everything, except there's a, there are two sections where the, the main character and, and another guy who's also German speak German to each other. That was not subtitled at all. And <laughs> luckily, I have been sort of half studying German for the last year and a half to the point where I could at least follow what was going on. Nice. <laughs> Nice. Yeah. But if it wasn't for that, I would have been like, what the hell? <laughs> so that's uh that's sort of where we're at. Well, they, they, they got the gig and they delivered the product and that this could be the first time that they were, you know, accountable beyond, you know, the uh the tutelage of, 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 of Norman Smith and that kind of, you know, psychedelic escapade that they started out with, like children almost. Uh they're they're kind of doing their own thing right and it's interesting that they go back to norman smith after this for the next couple mm. of but you know it, it's yeah, it's, it's almost like they're you know they're they're on a school trip away from their parents for the first time you know? yeah they are they are they're, they're 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 trying to grow up so shall we get into it ken yeah i'm gonna talk about chords okay so we start off with with cirrus minor and it, it opens with uh, with the sort of the bird sounds. It's very serene, um, and then you start getting this this phasing at the end of of the beginning, and it gets pretty spooky really quickly. And I'm pretty sure this is the the song they play at the funeral at the end of the movie. It's funny the the way these songs are presented is sort of all out of of sorts. But it's it's overall it's it's very melancholy, um, but which is appropriate. And and what I find interesting is, you know, they they use some interesting sounds um, in this. So you get this sort of accordion feel from the keyboards at some points, and 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 it's sort of I I, I think it helps create this Mediterranean feel. I'm not hundred percent certain if that's accurate or not but that's the impression that i get in my you know whatever perspective so it, I, I like the fact that they're 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 trying to fit this in a little bit to where the the music or the where the movie takes place because one of the things that the apparently the director wanted was he didn't want a standard soundtrack he wanted when the music came in for it to be part of the scene so for instance sure. um you know there's there's a scene in her apartment in paris where she has an lp playing and it's one of the songs or they're in a bar and you hear you know one of the songs like you would hear loud music at a bar um there's another scene near the end of the movie where he actually has it, it's it's quite funny he's got a little tape player and a song's playing and he stops it and he flips it over and then another song is playing so you know <laughs> they, they specifically wanted the music may be more attached to the story than it would otherwise be. And I think they did a good job. Okay. Kudos. I don't have much to say The the birds wore me down on this. And I, and I, and I, and I just kept waiting for the ones that I liked. So the ones that I liked were next. It was, um, probably two through six worked a lot better for me than this. I didn't really necessarily need Sirius Minor to get me to, to, you know, take it or leave it. Yeah, I get it. I totally get it. And, and, and there are some aspects of the music here. I think when the, when the, the story gets a little, you know, drug induced that, you know, maybe it's a little different. We can move on to, to two because the Nile song freaking love it. I, my note here says David Gilmore does Sabbath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, they've, it, see, they've got power chords here, and I really liked the gimmick, and and it's it's a musical gimmick where, where they're playing two chords a whole step apart. In other words, two mm -hmm. frets apart. It makes me think back to composition classes and in general, you know, music aesthetics, and in classical baroque romantic music you do not take your power chords you just don't do that 
you need motion. You need some retrograde motion. You need some some something really smooth and and appealing going on in your composition. But damn it, rock and roll, heavy metal. You've just got your your notes one fifth apart, and you just slide them up and down the neck, <laughs> and it's it's breaking all the rules of composition. It's just it it's just not musically sound. But of course, that's what we love about it. And I, I'm glad you invoked Sabbath because you know there I I think it's like a C sharp minor would be or something, and it keeps going back and forth, and then it goes down a half step. And you're like, oh my god, it's hanging out here. What's it gonna do? <laughs> and then they change key, and there and there and and there are. I expected like four key changes, or five, or six, or whatever. And they actually do so many key changes that they're repeating the progression already. So I, I would say it would be a perfect song and a perfect music lesson for a young musician if it were a bit shorter. The fact that it repeats kind of wears out the gimmick for me but when it's happening in the beginning i am right there i'm loving it so there there are a couple of things like this was one of the first songs i kind of latched on to because it was it was sort of so different from what you normally expect from pink floyd like one of the things and we've had this conversation in the text you know, Gilmore vocally is so smooth, and here you have him screaming at you, and and you, yeah, it's just like, yeah, yeah, whoa, yeah. what what is this about? The other thing, so that that was sort of the the first hook, pun intended. Um, Where did he even learn that? Like, who was doing that? Was it, it wasn't Cream? I mean, was it? But I mean. Um, um, Louis Louis. I mean, where is he getting this stuff? I I don't I don't honestly know. It, it's funny. Well, and and Nick Mason is playing in a sort of different. I mean, everything about this is just there was nothing from Pink Floyd that would suggest that they would you know try to rock out in this fashion. It, right. It, it was completely unanticipated. But the other thing, you know, once I I got deeper into this and sort of started to pay more attention. You know, this is the point where where Roger starts to step in and, and really sort of take creative control. Roger essentially wrote all of the songs on here. I think yes. one, of, one on the second side they is is credited to uh, to Groupthink. But you know, from from the start, and, and Nick talked about it from the start of of Take Up Thy Stethoscope. Roger has has very quickly developed his own sort of lyric style, and it's not the lyric style that we're going to maybe first re you know associate with him when we're talking about uh, "Wish You Were Here" animals and, and the wall and, and the final cut. But but there is sort of a consistency of style in this period for Roger Waters. And, and there are a couple of lines in the Nile song where he uses just very peculiar constructs that, that just struck me. And, and I'll read them. Like tears that like a child. And the second one is, then she spread her wings to fly for to fly. So he, he, he adds in these extra words that don't belong there. And, and and I think he just needs an extra syllable, and he just throws it in there for the sake of getting the extra syllable. And it, but it it kind of manifests itself in this in this quirky, peculiar sort of way that seems right to me. Okay, <laughs> you don't seem I mean, convinced. <laughs> well, well, I I mean, he's just come so far since since Corporal Clegg. I mean, I, I'm I'm delighted. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, yeah. He he's progressing leaps and bounds. So I think I think the Nile song is is very very enjoyable, and then you know you 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 grind gears back to to the crying song, which brings us actually to Paul's comments. Paul was unable to join us tonight as he is actually you know working at some sort of a conference or something and, and doing something grown up stuff. He's adulting, sure. He is adulting, but he he says he. Basically, Moore has two gears, acoustic trippy tunes that sound like everyone just ate some shrooms and started jamming, and nasty guitar songs that make me wonder why Roger Waters is screaming at me. Still, somehow I like it, but definitely a more passive enjoyment. Highlights are Cymbeline and main theme. So we have this, this grinding of gears from the Nile song to crying song. 
because whereas the Nile song is is gritty and metal and yelly, Crying Song is very beautiful and gentle and and soothing, and you know perhaps strung out as well. Who knows? I, I love it. It's a precursor to the lunatic is on the grass. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So um, it, it's absolutely beautiful. So 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 it's in D. It's a beautiful, beautiful D. And then they're doing this, um, that modal half step kind of a thing. I would say Lydian is the mode if you want to get into it. And then. It's just really beautiful. The only complaint I have, that whole lick is gorgeous. And that little chromatic line is gorgeous. And I even love the transition on the five chord with it. The only minor thing I would say is at the very end there, I like... He, he somehow repeats... I, I wanted to keep going higher, but he, right. he he gets to a certain point and he stops going higher. <laughs> Otherwise, it's a perfect song. It's a perfect progression, and it just it just takes me to where we need to be for Dark Side of the Moon. And that that's that's a great call out, Ken. I, I love that. You know, there there are some things here that do point towards the future, and it's very fascinating. I I do think this is another example of of Roger's lyrical style. I think, you know, you can sort of see the structural similarities lyrically from, from these songs and, and David's vocals are as lovely as the, as the guitar line. And it just, it, it, it I find it to be a very, very enjoyable and serene experience. Absolutely. Best song on the, on here for me personally, just really? to play with. Yeah. Okay. To play with. Sure. Um, not, uh, not my favorite, but that's okay. Then we go, uh, up the Kyber, which Kyber is a great word. Just seeing it spelled out just is kind of cool. Makes me think of the Kyber Pass pub. Um, yeah. Iconic. From, 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 and it still exists today. It's a, it's a restaurant bar and oh, occasionally really? music upstairs. Yes. Okay. Very, it very persists. Cool. Yep. I like it. Now, uh, my note here says very jazzy with, is it? I mean, I think it's jazzy. Is it jazzy? Uh, you know more about jazzy than I do, but it sounds jazzy. Ah, ah, ah. Well, I, I just love the fact that it's the only pairing of Mason and Wright where the tentacles of Waters Gilmore did not make it in there. So for, the, for, for historical purposes, it, it's really stunning and interesting does it fit the floyd catalog no i i also noted that it, it it does have this manic energy when it all kicks in but it it does work well with the film when they use it because you know ah. you, you get you get into these moments right where you've got some sort of drug fueled you know mania going on and it, it really does kind of fit in there well so you know i think they did uh you know i think it's honest in that regard Nice. Yeah, it truly is a, music, uh, a soundtrack for an album. And none of these need to survive on FM radio by themselves. Right. Green is the color. I, I wrote down a line here. Envy is the bond between the hopeful and the damned. You know, I just that spoke to me. And, and this is, you know, maybe one of the first great lines that, that Roger has dropped on us. And and I like the like musically. I, I respond to this this song a lot. I think it's it's very sentimental. It's very romantic. Um, the music, you know, when you have the the piano and is it a a piccolo or a recorder? What is that? Oh, it's a penny whistle. It's Nick's wife on penny whistle. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, I love it. it it's such a nice little addition. Okay, it it does highlight a softer side of. Uh... Dave's guitar playing, and I'll, I'll give him that. Yeah, for my purposes, I didn't hang out long on this. I think I listened to it fully once. 
and I was just bouncing back and forth between crying song and Cymbeline. But but it was it was a, a genuine attempt at what I would call American folk. It seemed it, it didn't have like the Jethro Tull British flair to me. It was kind of like it uh, seemed a bit American. Yeah, I can totally get that. Which takes us to Cymbeline. Now, for me, is this the hit song from this, the album? I, I don't know if it's the hit song, but it's the one that's a hit with me. I freaking love this song, and and one of the as I started listening to this more and more, like I got to the point where as soon as I would get in my car, I would fast forward right to this and just yeah deal with it, and then I'd listen to the rest of the album as I drove to work or home or whatever. But one of the first things that struck me specifically as I started to work out the lyrics and sing along, you have made um, comments and expressed displeasure with one Phil Collins' lack of diction. David Gilmore brings the diction in this in this <laughs> in this song. He is enunciating every syllable absolutely perfectly. And, um, you know, so I, I made that note right away as, as I got into this because I thought that was great. But uh, my, my, my notes say in capital letters, drool with four exclamation points, and I love this with three exclamation points. What I find interesting, th there's a number of things that I find interesting about this song. It sounds like it's a love song, but the lyrics suggest father of have a cigar. Mm, indeed, absolutely. Uh, Waters is just you know, taking out his frustrations on the music industry. Which, you know, it it, it, it it's completely out of step with the rest of the of the movie and the and the subject matter, but it sounds like it belongs perfectly in there. It's it's amazing. And you know, here again, when we talk about this album starting to point towards the future so again, you know, we all know have a cigar and, and some of the aspects of the wall and, and and everything else. So you know, Roger is is starting to collect his axes to grind, and and here we have it. But it in this particular case, it comes across in such a beautiful fashion, you, you don't even notice it until you start reading the lyrics, and you're like, what? What does this have to do? <laughs> but but even that being said, right? The the way. And it's really the the second verse that does it, but but the first verse, the way the, the the lyrics open up, the path you tread is narrow and the drop is sheer and very high. The ravings are all watching from a vantage point nearby, apprehension creeping like a tube train up your spine. Yeah, that's the line right there. Yeah, will yeah. the tightrope reach the end? Will the final couplet rhyme? I love the this set of lyrics. And of course, the irony here is that the final couplet does not rhyme in this song. <laughs> but, yeah, and it takes all that tension and then it resolves yeah. the chorus. And, 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 you know, so that exactly the these lyrics and this 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 vocal line create that tension right from the very beginning to the to the point where I, that's why it's almost like you're not really paying attention it's the second verse that kind of makes you go what huh mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but when you get into that chorus right and and i love it, there, there's even a certain tension in the chorus as it's you know the it, again it's just it's the three lines and the first two um you know, or sort of ascending, but then Gilmore just lands it so gently with that "Please wake me," and oh, I just love it. I love it so much. See, I think the diction fails on "Please wake me" because I interpret that bar as ten different things, listening to it ten different times. Uh, I agree, but when but his his diction in the in the verses is is very almost exaggerated. Stellar. But but but, but the the please wake me. You're absolutely right. He it does kind of you know come out of focus a little bit. Mm -hmm. But but mm -hmm. again, to me, it, it gives it it gives the impression of that sort of soft landing. You know? Yeah, yeah. That that's so, so so what what they're doing here, and I hate too many parallel chords but it's the verse is an a minor to a b minor and going back and forth between those 
is a little bit grating to me, and it's building tension. It just keeps going back, two minor chords, side by side. You gotta break free of this tension. And they go a little bit higher to resolve the tension to the C. Ah, <laughs> see, now I feel better. <laughs> but, they, but they take it to an extra level by going to this F here. It's like, that's when it's thoroughly, thoroughly happy. Um, and then just when you think, wow, they took me to this really happy place. E minor, they just drop you right there. <laughs> You know, and, and and honestly, you know, that in a microcosm has a lot to do with sort of the the, the story of the movie. Mm. So I don't know if, if that's what drove that sort of from a, you know, a, a music, you know, structure point of view. But it, it you know, it, it does because you've got these, this couple and, you know, they're in love with each other. They hate each other. They're, they they do these drugs and they have this euphoric thing and then they crash down and and you know they need another fix and it it's it's up and down and it's around and everything else so I mean it sounds like any other relationship but you just do it with Miller Lite yeah it's it's a little exaggerated <laughs> but um is Symbolite actually a character in the movie no not that I'm aware of oh. Okay. I, I have no idea what symbol line is, but it sounds beautiful. Yeah. I love the the bongos and pianos. I think and then the piano, I think that's wonderful. The the only beef I have with this is the 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 scatting is not good. I don't know what the fuck David Gilmore thought he was doing, but mm. he he didn't do what he should have done here. Um, mm. so yeah. Okay. I mean, white boys be white boys. Yeah. But that's even bad for white boys. Uh, <laughs> it's really not good. And, and that really, you know, that's really the meat of the album right there. When you, when you get into the, well, party sequence is technically on the first side, but, but the rest of this album really is more of the soundtracky you know, ambient type stuff, I think. Um, but very cool. Yeah, let's talk about where this goes after this. So it goes into party sequence, which is a very, very short, just straight, you know, percussive type section. But it's tabla. It's very ethnic. Are they in a Moroccan restaurant? It's, 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 a, it's a party actually, where there is a group of presumably Moroccan people who were doing this. Mm -hmm. And I, I actually looked up um, some, I, I tried to do a little bit of research on Ibiza, but it, because I, I figured there was probably some Moroccan influence on the island, but it, it doesn't appear that there actually is. It's mostly no. Spanish and with a smattering of, of other European influence, but maybe there is. And, and that becomes important. The reason why I looked that up is I wrote down that, you know, I don't think that this is cultural appropriation because it's, again, it's it's tied to the, the location of the movie. And to me, it seemed very reasonable that there would be this Moroccan influence, even though in my limited time, I wasn't able to, to ascertain that it should have been there. But it wasn't like... Um, you know, it, it wasn't like, you know, some of the things that happened in the Rush catalog, for instance, um, where you had, you know, cultural appropriation going on for... <laughs> we made fun of that. Yeah. yeah, for different reasons. So, and, and this is really, really short. And, you know, it, again, I it, it was, it played a very specific part in the movie. And so I just, I took it as it was. Okay, well, um, now that I feed my google addiction i've got uh this little ibiza up and it is off the east coast of spain and in, in the valencia region um but if you were to swim like a madman towards <laughs> africa you know well i mean it, the, the the strait of gibraltar 
is swimmable, I suppose, for, 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 for some. So you're not that far from Morocco and Casablanca and whatnot. Yeah. It, 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 it's, all, it's, all, it's all very boatable. 100%. No doubt. Okay, so they're justified having as many tablets as they want in their Spanish movie. Apparently. Good. Then we go on to the main theme, and I find it funny that the main theme is buried so deep in this album. And, you know, it, it's very disorienting and creepy, the way this, this song opens up. I mean, it could almost be a horror movie. And, oh. and, and You're going to make me do the second side, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I thought this was all noise, but yeah, humor me. What do you got? Well, so this becomes important. It, like I said, it could almost be a horror movie. And the interesting thing is this is actually the way the freaking movie opens. And you're just like, what the f is going on here? Oh. But once the band kicks in and, and you're, you kind of move past the, the weird noises and everything else, this is very Tangerine Dream extraordinarily tangerine dream and that becomes it was funny to me because there was a there was a podcast i listened to from i guess it was the Prague magazine folks and those those guys are freaking hardcore i mean we like to talk about shit when those guys get into it they are so deep in the weeds you can't even see them for days <laughs> but but one of the one of the episodes that i listened to um i believe i recall this they were talking about whether or not tangerine dream should be considered prog and they had ultimately decided that yes they should be and so i, I found it funny when i i was listening to this and i'm like this is you know something that tangerine dream would have done you know in the in the early 70s so i thought that was that was kind of interesting so they are prog act that originated in psychedelia so that is a, a very strong parallel to pink floyd yeah mm, okay okay um they possibly have the largest discography of any prog act I mean, because they existed in 1970 and they continue to this day. Yeah. They have not missed a year that I can see. Okay. We're going we're gonna to need a bigger podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Tangerine, like, I love Tangerine Dream. I got into Tangerine Dream back in college, um, actually at the, at the urging of my sister of all people. Huh. And, you know, once it, it's such a vast uh, catalog that once you get in there, you could wander around for a very, very long time. And it, it's, it's quite fascinating. And, and the cool thing when I got on my vinyl binge, you know, a year, year and a half ago, whenever it was, you know, the, the amount of Tangerine Dream that was available to me sort of grew quite a lot because I had a bunch on CD, but there were different titles that were available on on vinyl and and quite available here in the states so that was very cool well to the credit of pink floyd um this is the second act that they predated so we talked about sabbath didn't happen till 70 tangerine dream didn't happen till 70 and pink floyd laid the groundwork for both quite an achievement it in, indeed so there you go Okay, and this, this movie progresses on. What do you got for me here with this side two? So then we have Ibiza Bar. Now, Ibiza Bar, to me, is Nile Song Part 2, but not nearly as good. I think, mm. I think the, you know, the, the gritty guitars and the, the noisy drum line, very reminiscent. I think the, the, the vocal line, very reminiscent of Nile Song. It's just not nearly as engaging to me. Yeah, I'm assuming that, given that Clapton was God, that there's some kind of uh, um, um, Clapton influence to some of this harder rock and guitar stuff going on here. It could and, very and, well be. And they, they toured with, they toured opening for Hendrix before Dave was fully in the band. So Hendrix, we'll, we'll give a shout out to Hendrix too. But yeah, the, the, the Ibiza Bar does have some of that heavy metal going on. So, funny story about Jimi Hendrix. I'll take a little sidetrack here because I did come across this in Nick Mason's book. And again, the, the way that the book is written, I couldn't honestly tell you what year or tour this was, but it was early on 
in the proceedings. It was, it was, I think their second trip to the U.S. They were not, they were not supporting Jimi Hendrix. They were on a different tour at that point, but they had apparently similar issues with equipment that wasn't being provided and they didn't have mm-hmm. the right stuff. And apparently Jimi Hendrix heard about this and took them to his warehouse and said, take what you need, boys. Oh, my God. So that's pretty cool. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. So going back to more, we now go on to more blues, which I noted is a very accurate title. Um, I actually, I like it. Um, there's a lot of space here. It's like you almost feel like you're in the room. It's a very interesting recording uh, in the sense that you can, th- there's so much space between the instruments. You can, like I said, you feel like you're standing there and, and Nick's over here and, and David's standing over there. And yeah, I mean, there's not a whole lot that I have to say about it. And it's not something that I would ever get, in, you know, pick up the CD and go, oh, I have to hear more blues. But, you know, it, I, I did find some things that were redeeming about it. Did you actually identify these in the movie? More Blues, Quicksilver, the Spanish piece? I, I, I meant to. I, I, I didn't have time to go back a third time and, and, and note all of them. I do know Quicksilver is fascinating because there's, there's one scene where they, once they've started using the heroin, and they, they cut to a scene of them, and they're, they're laying out in the sun, together and you know they they look they they look as alive and beautiful as they ever look in this movie she's got this gorgeous sort of moroccan vest on and her hair is 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 right and like all the clothes are clean but they're they're sitting they're laying down on the ground on their stomachs right next to each other and they have this shallow bowl that's filled with mercury and they're really? they're they're just rolling it around, which you know it, it's it's amazing in you know in in 2020 when you know obviously mercury hasn't been readily available for a long time. I can remember when I was in elementary school, you know, some kid would invariably show up one day with a little vial of mercury, and you'd play with it with the desk, and it was oh, isn't this cool? Because mercury is very cool; it's just really poisonous. So. You know, and and it's in the in the lens of today. I was like, "Damn, how'd they get that much mercury?" <laughs> but and and while I'm not a heroin user, nor have I ever tried heroin, I can understand where if you're really strung out, looking at 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 uh, mercury or quicksilver in a bowl would probably could be pretty cool. Yeah, the chemist in you is is, is the name. Quicksilver uh, offensive as it's not actually silver. No, no, it's 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 what mercury was traditionally referred to as. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm totally okay. on board with that. It, it it almost speaks to the alchemical roots of my profession. So I'm a big fan. I, I love I love quicksilver. <laughs> okay. All right. But uh, you know it, it's you know this at the same time like the beginning part of this song the 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 creepy spooky and weird part really speaks to when these two start to sort of go off the rails and it, it really does it, it does sort of convey that and uh, then, they get one, they get one last pleasant day at the beach before the movie turns dark and icky yeah <laughs> does, does this for, does this foreshadow the way the wall ends because I, I feel a little gross at the end of that movie too yeah that's true um then a Spanish piece, which I say is another accurate name. Uh, the voiceover here is is very strange. I don't know what that's all about, but I'm sure it's likely by design. And then um, and then it finishes up with dramatic theme. And, and my note here says I don't know what to say about this. It, you know, it, it is it's dramatic. It's kind of weird. It's disjointed. It's you know it's it's almost like it's tacked on at the end of the album because. It didn't fit anywhere else, so they just put it there. I, I think you fared very well with this album. I, I was, I, like I said, I really took to this album surprisingly. Uh, I, I don't want to say that 
it's better than a saucer full of secrets or I'd like it more than a saucer full of secrets. But I, and, and it's not, it's not a hundred percent even by any stretch of the imagination, but I will say that, like I said, that, that core section sort of, you know, for you two through six, for me, maybe one through six, I think is, ex is extraordinarily solid. And I find this to be a very easy listen all 45 minutes of it or whatever it is. It, it just kind of zips right by and I'm like, oh, that was mm. cool. And and like I said, now that I'm, I'm into it, I'll every time I put this, I have put this on as I was preparing for this, you know, near the end, the last couple of times, I would listen to Cymbaline two, three, four times in addition to everything else. Um, just because I, I, I discovered I enjoyed singing the song, so. Yeah, I I like Cymbaline. Um, uh, there is a version with Waters singing Cymbeline that apparently made it into the movie, but I, you know, would have to ask you if that seems possible. Did 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 you notice a different voice? Did you notice Waters? I don't know that I did, but I'm going to have to go back and look for it now because I need to hear that. It's a much much softer rendition, especially in the in the chorus. He's taking it very lightly. Um, yeah, I, I, I would say Cymbeline goes over well live. You can find the live Cymbeline. There are two significant ones on the YouTubes that are worth a listen. I, you know, I think by later Floyd standards, it's not a, it's not a classic. It, it's not going to make the list of top 10 Floyd songs, but it's, it's got a good vibe to it. Yeah. You know, and, and. And at the same time, as we've mentioned, it does presage, you know, some things that we're going to see later on. So it, it's it's the the genesis, if we can use that phrase, of of Pink Floyd that we knew growing up. I think, and maybe that's some of what I respond to here. Plus, for me, this while I liked it before, once I watched the movie, and the movie is is sad and, and depressing and, and in some ways awful, but it, it did sort of stick with me. And, you know, since I've watched it and certainly after the second time, I cannot listen to this album without thinking about that. And the visual reinforcement, uh, you know, helps, helps, you know, feed back the, the two together and, and increases their import, I think. Okay, well, this was um, January to February. The recording sessions were done in the winter of 69, and they are already gearing up to do another project released in November of 69. Uh, now, that particular project makes me want to punch myself in the skull, but we're going to cover that <laughs> next time. <laughs> I feel the same way it's remarkable how fast they work though because they, they they produced a large volume of material for the next one yeah it's it's uh it's kind of amazing um yeah i i i am not going to lie i am not at all looking forward to the next episode uh, i i i need to work harder at this particular one but i have not enjoyed um, so far, what my experience has been. All right. Well, let's quit while we're ahead and, and try good. to brace ourselves for uh, uh, this 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 crazy future coming up. Well, you know that's what we have to do. We uh, we we do not shirk our responsibility here at the Palaver, <laughs> <laughs> much as we might like to. But I, you know, I did have fun with this, and Ken, I'm glad that you were along for the ride and were able to give us some some music theory lessons. In, in how this was constructed and why that we uh, we like the things that we like so well. So very, very cool. Cool, cool, cool. A lick for the road. <laughs> <laughs> very, very nice. All right. Well, thanks, Ken. I look forward to uh, next time. Rock. Bye.
We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Progressive Blever. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we look forward to your thoughts, comments, questions, and feedback. You can reach us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. We are at Progpala on all of those, or search for Progressive Palaver. You are also welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or presumably wherever you find your podcast. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>